We had, uh, the, the last time Lee was here, we had studied uh, on the resurrection, and we'd looked at uh, the 12 apostles and the last part of the account of the Gospels, and then we looked at uh, the Apostle Paul and his conversion. And what we're going to look at tonight is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, but as we look at it, we're really concentrating in the field of evidences, okay, that uh, uh, Paul is writing to Christians at Philippi, and it's a church that he started. Remember that uh, Paul was thrown in jail at Philippi, and he converted the Philippian jailer, and then the church started at that time, and now Paul writes back. Now, at the time Paul writes, he's in jail, okay? Paul is in a Roman jail at the time that he writes Philippians. All right, now... There's several things I want you to think about from an evidence standpoint. And remember, when you study evidences, cause and effect are always extremely important. In fact, uh, uh, everything is, is based on cause and effect when you, st when you study uh, evidences. Uh, Paul is the same one now that historians recognize at one time uh, believed that Jesus was an imposter. He did not believe in him as the Messiah and was doing all he could to stamp out Christianity. Okay, Paul, we, in his conversion, we had uh, Jesus appearing to Paul, and Paul was converted to a belief in the resurrection of Christ. And, and we noted that you and I were not there. Whatever Paul saw, we didn't see. We've only got his word, okay? And one person's word, we know, is, is not good enough in and of itself. In other words, that uh, even if the person is honest, we know there's a possibility he can be deceived. So we're, we're looking to evaluate uh, Paul's information. And what we've already noted is that uh, Paul, at his conversion, made a 180-degree about-face in just a, at that moment of time. In other words, that here he is trying to step out Christianity, and now he is a Christian, and he's promoting Christianity. So then, from a cause-and-effect standpoint... The question becomes, what event could have been so strong as to cause Paul to change from a Jew that's trying to destroy Christianity to becoming a Christian himself? What event could change that? Uh, you know, and Paul's claim was that he saw the resurrected Christ. Now, to appreciate the significance of Paul's conversion, because now Paul's writing in jail. As he writes Philippians, he's in jail. All Paul had to do to get out of jail is deny Jesus as the Christ. That's all he had to do. The Romans don't want him in jail. They're, it's the Jews who are trying to take his life. And he's making his appeal through the Roman court. So all he has to do to get out of jail is to deny Jesus, and he, simply, and, and he doesn't do it. Now, we look at his attitude as he's in jail, and he writes back to the Philippians. All right, the Philippians are being persecuted specifically because they're Christians. <laughs> All they have to do to escape that persecution is to denounce Jesus. That's all they have to do, but yet they don't do it. Now, to give you maybe a, a few things in your mind to appreciate the conversion of the Apostle Paul, everybody here tonight is keeping up with the news, and we know what's happening with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? And we, now we know the type of person that Saddam Hussein is, and that he's a military man, he invaded Kuwait, uh, we know that in religion that he is a Muslim. And we know, he, he know, we know he's very intelligent. In other words, everybody agrees that he's very intelligent. 
he is a devout Muslim and he believes he's right. Now we may believe he's wrong, but he believes he's right. That he honestly believes that, uh, that uh, the Arabs over there have been mistreated and he believes he is the man to lead them in their situation uh, into a better time for all of them. He honestly is convinced of that. All right, what if, that's the way he is right now, what if tomorrow Saddam Hussein were to say that uh, I am no longer a Muslim, but I have converted to Christianity, I now believe it's wrong to kill, we're going to move our armies back, and he has a complete change of attitude. You know, the whole change of attitude. What would you think? I mean, what if you woke up and that was on the news? That Saddam Hussein has converted to Christianity, that he has changed his whole attitude, he now believes it's wrong to kill people, and he pulls his army back, and now he says that the way that we're going to uh, change things is by teaching people to love one another. Okay? Now, can you imagine that happening? You, you can't, can you? Because it's, it's too different. It's, it's so different. We would know that if that happened to Saddam Hussein, there would have to be a very strong explanation, right? You're, it wouldn't, it'd have to be a real strong thing. All right, if that happened to Saddam Hussein and you saw the change in his life and all of a sudden he started to love people and he pulled his army back and he began to teach people to love and, and he believed so strong that even when the Muslims excommunicated him, wanted to take his life, he still would not deny his conversion and all. Would you be interested in what he had to say? You would. All right? The Apostle Paul was as devout a Jew as Saddam Hussein is a Muslim. He believed that it was right to take the lives of Christians because according to the Jewish religion, that if somebody was a false prophet, that their life was to be taken. That was, that was, it was the capital punishment, the death penalty. And so when Paul held the garments while they stoned Stephen to death, and while they put people in jail, he was sincere. He honestly believed he was doing the will of God. And so here he is, a devout Jew, stamping out Christianity. He believes he's doing the will of God. He believes it's right to take the life of people that actually claim to be something religiously that they're not. He, belie he actually believes it. Okay, now, Paul makes a complete 180-degree change. He says, I was wrong that Jesus is a resurrected Christ, he says, it's wrong to, to promote what you believe by taking lives. Rather, that not only is Jesus a resurrected Christ, but the only way we're ever going to promote it is by love. We're just going to go in and reason and present the evidence. We're going to teach people to love one another. We're no longer going to fight back, and we'll even go to our death in promotion of Jesus as the Son of God. Well, just as Saddam Hussein is a very intelligent person, Paul is very intelligent. All historians, all philosophers, all psychologists are in, are in agreement. I don't care if they believe in Christianity or not, that Paul is an extremely intelligent individual, and he's very well educated. Even if a person is not a Christian, for one man to go all over the Roman Empire and convert thousands of people to what he believed, obviously he has to have something going for him. And that's exactly what Paul did. So what I'm saying is, there is an impact. When we study evidence, we look at cause and effect. Now, here's the effect. 
Paul is a devout Jew one day. He's a devout Christian the next day. He believes it's right to kill in order to promote what he believes one day. The next day, he believes it's wrong to kill, to promote what he believes. Okay? He changes completely in his personality and his method of approach, and now he's promoting Christianity. That's the effect. The question is, what is the cause? What could have caused Paul? In other words, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, how do we explain that event? Well, Paul took this message, and when we remember when we look at Paul, we also look at the 12 apostles, that all 12 of the apostles were also devout Jews. Now, when we read like uh, the Gospels and the New Testament, sometimes it's said it's, it's not real good evidence because those, it's written by believers, and so therefore biased. But keep in mind, every page in the New Testament was written by somebody who started off as an unbeliever. Uh, all of them except Luke were devout Jews. None of the apostles believed that Jesus was raised from the dead until it was proven to them. Every one of them denied it, and yet all of them came to believe it. Okay, Luke was a Gentile who was not a believer, and he becomes a Christian. So I'm saying every page of the New Testament is written by intelligent people who are very strong in their belief, and yet all of them started out as unbelievers. Okay, every last one of them started out as unbelievers. Nobody could have, be, could have been an unbeliever even any stronger than Paul was. Okay, now, we've got all of those effects. The question is, what is strong enough to produce that kind of effect? All right, now, in Philippians that we're going to look at, think of it as you read this letter, written by a man who at one time, like Saddam Hussein, was a devout Muslim and was willing to take lives to spread what he believed, now he writes as a Christian who's in jail, and he's doing everything he can to promote the Christian religion. I want you to notice something else about the Apostle Paul. Notice his attitude towards death. I want you to note when you look at his attitude that Paul's not scared of death. And, and then for there, that's an effect. The question is, what could be strong enough to cause a man to have no fear of death? And he doesn't have it. And what is true of Paul is true of all these apostles, that none of them seem to have any fear of death whatsoever. All of them will be killed specifically because they're Christians, and all they had to do to escape death was to deny Christianity. Now, another thing to note as you read this, I want you to notice not only his attitude towards death, his, his strong belief in all, but his attitude towards life and, and what motivates him. Uh, there are a lot of people that believe something so strong that they'll die for it. That doesn't mean it's true. And the, for example, I do not believe the Muslim religion, yet there are a lot of Muslims that will die for it. That doesn't prove it's true. And so somebody believing, like Paul, so strong that he'll die, that doesn't prove it's true. We have to look deeper than that. It's, it's an evidence in that direction. But what I want you to think about on the attitude when you see the TV and you see these Muslims with that strong belief that they have, have you ever asked yourself the question, how much of that belief is caused by sheer fear? What happens to you in a Muslim country if you deny, if you deny your belief in Muhammad? Lose your job, you might have your life taken, you're ostracized, you're segregated from the, from the rest of the people, your family, dis, your family disowns you, your whole society turns against you, okay? 
it is an absolute sin for a Muslim to even study uh, with a Christian in areas that are controlled by the Muslim. And so when you see that strong belief, what you always have to be asking yourself is how much of that is motivated by fear. For example, what if you were in an Iraq today and you really didn't believe Saddam Hussein was right? Would you be speaking up or would you be waving a banner? Probably waving a banner. Look how many Germans did not believe Hitler was right and yet they were scared of him because they saw that others get put to death because they stood up against him. All right, the interesting thing is all through the centuries there have been people that stood up because of fear, okay? Fear of what others would think of them, fear of what would happen to them. The interesting thing about Paul and the Christians that go to their death is it's not out of fear, it's out of love. If, if Paul all of a sudden denies Christ, he doesn't have to worry about being ostracized. You know what happens if Paul denies Christ? They open the jail and they let him out. The Jews receive him with open arms. All of, a, all of a sudden, they, they want to put him on all their talk shows and everything. He's the, he's the man, man of the hour. Any Christian that denounced Christianity, life got better for them. Okay? So I'm saying that, that people many times believe to the point that they give their life, but many times that belief is because of fear. It was true with the Nazis in, in Germany. It was true with the Japanese in World War II. It's true with the Muslims that, that fear plays a whole lot. They, their government is so strong and, and there is no free will and they can take the life. And just like, uh, uh, for example, what uh, you all experienced in China a little year ago, a lot of people give in and say they believe in that government, not because they really believe, but because they're scared. And they're scared of their life. Okay? And I'm saying that's true in Muslim countries and I'm saying that's true all any time in the world when you look at people that have gone out and died for what they believe, a lot of times, now not every time, but a lot of times it's out of fear, okay? But here's the interesting thing about Christianity and Paul. It's not out of fear, it's out of love. And Christianity is unique, and notice some things that it does. Number one, it's going to go all over the entire world, but it's not going to go by force. It's going to be spread by love. And it's going to go by people that are willing to die for what they believe, and they could escape death, and life would get better for them if they would just deny Christ. And yet, out of love and belief, they go. And so there, there's a big difference in somebody willing to die for what they believe, but a big motivating force is fear, and somebody willing to die for what they believe, and the motivating force is, is love. Uh, the more that you examine Paul and his writings, and the other apostles and their writings, and you look at their lives, and you look at the, what they actually said and their change in life, and then we notice some things about the prophecies and all like that, I think we just constantly build evidence to an inescapable conclusion, and that is that that event of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ actually happened, and they were convinced beyond any doubt in their mind. Okay, let's start over here in the first verse uh, in Philippians. Uh, let's see, Chuck, are you in Philippians? Okay, you want to start there reading, please, and at a good breaking point, let's see, uh, Jack, pick up at a good breaking point, and uh, let's get that first chapter. Uh, Mark, would you want to pick up after Jack, and then Steve, each of you pick up at a good breaking point, and we'll get that first chapter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. 
and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have, have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending the, and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, and again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign for them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Okay, now, <clears throat> think of what's said there. Paul's writing to Christians at Philippi. The question is, why did they leave their pagan beliefs and become a Christian in the first place? I mean, that when they were in their pagan beliefs, life was good for them. Now that they've become Christians, look at verse uh, uh, 29 and 30. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe but also to suffer. 
since you are going through the same struggle that, that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So here are people then, not just Paul, but here is a group of people that have been converted and they are suffering and going through struggles and all they have to do to escape this is to deny Christ. Okay? Now, notice their attitude in verse uh, uh, 27. Whatever happens... Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So they are aggressively contending uh, for the resurrection of Jesus, and he tells them, don't even be frightened by anybody that opposed you. And so again, ask yourself, what is it that causes a person to contend for a cause and be willing to suffer and to die and not even to be frightened of, of the consequences therein. In other words, something had to cause that kind of belief. Okay, now, look at Paul's attitude towards death. Uh, in verse 20, starting with verse 21, uh, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am going on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And notice his attitude towards life is Paul thinks of himself as a spiritual being who lives in this body. Okay? The word death is a Greek comes from a Greek word, thanatos, that simply means separation. That's the literal meaning of the word. And you can see there, death to Paul was just simply separation of the spirit from the body. And he says, I'm betwixt the two. To tell you the truth, I'd rather just go ahead and depart the body and be with Christ, but I'm ready to stay here in the body for the good that I can do you. In other words, again, the question that you're asking and answering in your mind, what kind of evidence does an intelligent, well-educated person have to have that causes him to not fear death? And he, and, and he thinks of death as just departing from the body and going to be with Christ, okay? And so I'm saying that all evidence is that Paul was telling the truth when he talked about seeing the resurrected Christ that we studied in, in Acts, the 8th chapter. This is why that the greatest scholars, even those who are not believers in Christ, no question. They, they acknowledge that Paul is sincere. He's telling the truth. Uh, this man has a, an attitude that's almost unreal. He has no fear of death. Uh, he's willing to suffer, to sacrifice, and he is absolutely convinced of these particular things. Okay? So Paul has this attitude. Now, again, to ask yourself the question, if Christianity is true, now, we haven't proved it yet. We're still in the process of examining and all. But if it is true, wouldn't it be good to live and know that the real you that's made in the image of God simply lives in this body, that the body simply houses your spirit, and that all death is is the separation of the body from the spirit? I'm saying that if that is true, maybe it's not. Yeah, we haven't proved anything yet. But if it is wouldn't that be good to contemplate? I'm saying it's worth the time to examine the evidence. I mean, we all know that despite all the talk about material things and, and, and the physical here, that the body gets old 
and we die, and that's it. And so it, it's worth all the time to investigate this. And so when I look at Paul to really appreciate him, I have to ask myself, what would happen if Saddam Hussein tomorrow was a devout Christian promoting Christianity and willing to die for the faith and promoting the cause of love? And then he told me that some particular thing had happened to cause this. I'm saying that that would be such a total change in character that I would have very, be very strongly compelled to believe whatever he said. I mean, you'd have an absolute total change in character, and this is exactly what happened to Paul. But it didn't just happen to Paul. Paul, the Philippians, are a group of people. Now, remember when you read this letter to the Philippians, and you read about how they're suffering and how they're struggling because of their belief. Every one of these people, just a few years before, did not believe in Jesus. They were not Christians. And most of them were in pagan idolatry, okay? And so then the question becomes, what kind of evidence did it take to cause them to leave all of their beliefs and become a devout Christian and be willing to suffer? And again, I'd have to say that I'd have to believe that the evidence would have to be very strong in order to cause that. Now, notice his attitude towards uh, life. Uh, number one, in verse 7, uh, right about the middle of the verse, he said, I'm in change for defending and confirming the gospel. Okay? Paul's number one goal in life was presenting the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And when he says he's in chains, that's exactly why he was there. Uh, he, was, uh, he was actually defending the resurrection, and that had got him in jail. But whether he went to jail, whether they beat him, or whether they took his life, as they would eventually do, they couldn't stop him. That was his goal in life once he found it. He's like a man that has found a cure for cancer, and he's going to share it with everybody. And so he definitely, he definitely has that attitude. Now, look at verse 9. What happens, I want you to notice something here. What would happen to you, forget about religion, if you were put in jail as an innocent person? And people are accusing you of things that are not so, and, they're put, and they want to take your life, and you've been put in jail, your freedom has been taken away. You think you'd feel pretty bitter? You'd, you'd think you'd have a whole lot of love for the people that were holding you in jail. It's pretty hard not to feel bitter. In fact, uh, uh, of all the interviews that I've seen on any time they've had a program on TV where they interviewed somebody that had spent time in jail and then they found out they were innocent, that without exception, uh, they ask them, are they bitter? And they say, yes. And, and I could identify with that because I'd be bitter too. If, if, if I had spent time in jail for something I didn't do, it would be very hard not to be bitter. It would. What if uh, you had been a black person back in the 1800s in the United States and, and been in slavery and all, uh, and here you are in slavery and nothing you can do about it? You'd probably feel bitter towards the white. It'd be, it'd be hard to do. You would be hard-pressed in history to find somebody that has been mistreated and misrepresented and is not bitter. Okay, and that's what we have here. Look at, look at what he says in verse 9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
Okay, then in verse, uh, uh, let's see. I was looking for the part where he said that they were to shine as light. It's in chapter 2, isn't it? Oh, okay, am I getting... <clears throat> okay, looking over in chapter 2 then. Thanks, Steve. Uh, look at verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Okay, here's a man that's in jail for something he didn't do. He's already told them to love and to grow in love. And he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine as stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Okay, notice what he's saying. <clears throat> he tells them, number one, he wants them to grow in love. Number two, he says he wants them to live righteous and good and clean lives. And in this crooked world where there's a lot of lying, a lot of stealing, a lot of murder, a lot of wrong things, he wants them to live their lives and be people who love their neighbor as themselves, love their enemies, uh, overcome evil with good, and says, you actually be light. But notice now, he's not only asking them to live that way, they're to live that way among people who are trying to take their life who are throwing them in jail, and who are doing everything they can to destroy what they believe. And yet, they're not to respond in bitterness, which is a natural thing. They're to respond in love. All right, now the question becomes, where in all of history would you parallel this? Uh, a people that are being persecuted and mistreated, uh, Paul's in jail, and are not bitter, but rather he's telling them to love their enemies, to grow in love, uh, to live as honest people, to tell the truth, to do what's right, to be a light in this world. And then, as people are attracted to that, to teach them about what they can have in Christ. The death, the burial, and the resurrection, the salvation they can have in Christ. Where in all of history or literature would you find that paralleled? It, you don't. It's, it's unique to Christianity. There's, there is not a single time in history that you can go and read about a persecuted people but that they become bitter. You don't. Uh, remember when Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say unto you, love your enemies also. Uh, nobody ever taught that before. I mean, it was the religious leaders of Jesus' day were actually teaching that. That, uh, that you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. Uh, the Muslims believe that. The Muslims believe, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. They love Muslims, they hate us. Okay? I hate Americans. Uh, that most people all over the world love their own kind and they hate others. When we look back, we, white people love whites, hate blacks. And, and we, we've seen all over people mistreating one another all through the centuries. You know, you love your own, you, you hate others. Jesus was absolutely unique in teaching them to love everybody. Even people who don't love you and who are your enemies or who try to hurt you or whatever, you still love them. And, and in the process of loving them, you actually become light because people are not that way. And then in the, in you draw people and then you teach them about this information. So I'm saying that, that 
when I look at all the psychological factors here, a man who was a devout Jew that is now a devout Christian, uh, writing to people who were devout pagans who are now devout Christians, and who are being persecuted for what they believe, and Paul's writing this from jail. And, and by the way, you again, think of how you would feel if you were in jail right now. It, in the book of Philippians, it's just a short letter, Paul uses the term rejoice 14 times. And I, I, can't, I can't picture anybody in jail for the wrong reason writing a letter, and in a short letter 14 different times he tells other people to rejoice and be happy and to, and to love. I mean, what comes from people in jail, especially if they're there unfairly, is bitterness. You know, that's, that's, that's natural. And so how do we, the question is, how do we explain this uh, with the Apostle Paul? How do we explain a man that has been mistreated in jail and he's teaching people to love, he's teaching them to rejoice, he's teaching them to tell the truth, he's teaching them to love their enemies, and not only that, these Christians were going to buy into it. Uh, they actually became the light of the society. And, and to this day, I don't know of any group other than Christianity that teaches people to love everybody. Black people love white people. White people love black people. Black and white love Chinese. Chinese love white, that we're all one and we're all equal before God. And everybody ought to love everybody else. And, you ought to, and even your enemies, uh, the way to win him is to love him. I don't know anything that teaches that. And yet it's, it's being taught there. And they're going to jail. They're being persecuted. And they not only are contending for Christ, but they're contending for it with a, a different type attitude than has ever approached the world. I don't know of anything. My major in school was history. Uh, I know of absolutely nothing. By a hobby, I read history. And I know of absolutely nothing you could ever see in history that would parallel this. It's just totally unique. And I don't know. And psychologically, to my mind, it's impossible unless something happened that's beyond, beyond the natural. I just, uh, it is psychologically, I believe that from the standpoint of the natural, it is psychologically impossible to mistreat people, throw them in jail, lie about them, abuse them, and have them respond by loving you and telling others to love you and to be kind and courteous and respect your laws and, and not to try to overthrow or anything like that. I think that's a psychological impossibility, and they're doing it. But the reason they're doing it is because they're absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for everybody, and that everybody can have eternal life in him. And I'm saying that for that to happen, for you to do something that is psychologically against your nature, the evidence that you're dealing with has to be pretty powerful. Anybody have any comments over what we've covered so far? Okay, let's go into the uh, second chapter. Uh, <clears throat> Louise, you want to start reading there in the second chapter, and uh, Barbara, pick up after her, and then uh, Tim and Christy, y'all find a good breaking spot and we'll finish that out. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Again, notice the, the attitude that's being portrayed here. In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now, the first question is, where outside of Christianity do you ever have you ever come in contact with a concept like that? Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Uh, our vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. I'm saying he's asking something of them that's contrary to human nature. Each of you should not only look out for your interest, but also the interest of others. 
But notice his motivating factor. And this becomes a motivating factor for everything that's, that's in Christianity. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. All right, now, think of your, put yourself in God's position when we deal with this in Christ. We experience in this life parenthood. In fact, the relations that God has given us in this life, God then uses to teach us something about himself. In other words, we have father and son and mother and father and then son and daughter and husband and wife and the Bible uses these relationships. All right, now, if you have a child and you want to teach him to be a certain way, what's the best way to do it? Example. Example. That's right. If, if you have a child, and for example, uh, if, if, uh, if Lee has a child and he wants to teach that child to be polite and courteous, there's no better way than to set that kind of an example before the child himself, right? That's the best way. In fact, it's one thing to tell the other person something, and it's another thing to do it yourself, right? It's one thing to tell anybody to do something, and it's another thing to do it yourself and show them how to do it, okay? Here is what happens with Christ Jesus. In the law, we were told what was right, okay? We were told what was right. The law said to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, to do good unto others, not to kill, steal, etc., to be humble. That was all said it. But there was no example there. It was the law. Inwardly, we found ourselves agreeing with it. We said it's right. But then we said, well, the truth is, oh, nobody can be that way. And so we justified ourselves for the fact that nobody lives this way. All right? What we have in Christ, I'm saying, is, is from a psychological standpoint, what happened with Christ is perfectly logical. If God wants us to be humble, if he wants us to consider other people before ourselves, if he wants us not to be selfish, if he wants us to love even our enemies, then how, what better way can he do than set the example himself? And so what Paul says God did is Jesus came to this earth specifically to set an example of how God would have us live. And so just as uh, we refer to God as our Father in heaven, and the Father wants us to live a certain way, so he sets the example, just as we have children, and then we set an example. All right, now, I want you to look at this from still another standpoint. If God were to come to earth and live, what would you expect? In other words, uh, right now, if God were to come and live in human flesh, what would you expect? What kind of life? If you believe you're made in the image of God, what if, uh, if God came to live, uh, sent his son to live here in human flesh, and his son was a liar, a thief, was very proud, would that be what you expect, would expect or would it shock you? It'd shock you, wouldn't it? Because 
even though human beings lie and do these things, in our heart, we believe it's wrong. And our conscience condemns us when we do it. And so I might lie, but then my conscience condemns me and I feel bad about it. You see, and I might cheat, but then my conscience condemns me and I feel bad about it. So the, in order to live up to what I inwardly believe is right. Now, it's very easy to live up to the practice of human beings. But I'm saying it's very difficult to live up to their ideal. That deep down and inwardly, they identify with what is right. And I'm saying that what you have in Christ is exactly what you would inwardly expect. And it's different than what any body has ever done. In other words, human beings, uh, as human beings, the more money we have as a general rule, and the, more, the, sm the smarter we are and the better at anything, we tend to be prouder, right? The more we've got, so isn't Joe so proud? He's got so, <laughs> so much money. <laughs> we all, whatever we got in any, if it's an athlete, right, and they're real, real good, proud, if they're real good at fixing cars, proud, <laughs> so cocky, can't stand it. Got a sore finger. Pick on Joe now. Right, I like that. We pick on Joe. Sundays too. He's, he's the only one with the holy dog. So we got. Uh, but it is. It, it, I'd say we do. That when somebody makes a decision that is that uh, we'll say that's silly. Well, in from from your perspective, that may be you know that way, but maybe not from there. I'm saying that human nature. All of us are prouder than we should be. And, and all of us look down somewhat that it's that what we have here is something contrary to human nature. And I'm saying that, that inwardly, we would like for everybody to conduct themselves so that they were concerned about the interest of others and they loved others and everything, but we never really see it perfectly in this life. And so Paul calls on the example of Jesus in order to get them to live that way. And so Christianity is based on a law that's embedded in a person of Christ. And so the law says one thing, Christ actually lived it as an example. And the interesting thing is, from a psychological standpoint, we find ourselves inwardly agree agreeing with it. Okay, so he says, Jesus died even on a cross. He loved other people to the point that he would die for others. And so Paul calls on them to have a certain type of attitude based on the fact that this is the example that Christ has already set for you. And so if we think it's too difficult to try and be this way, then we need to keep in mind it was our, our hope for salvation is based on the fact that Christ was that way. Okay, now, uh, any uh, notice uh, verse 19, Timothy. Uh, he's, his strong belief complimented by Paul. Timothy was not brought up as a Christian. His mother was a devout Jew. His grandmother was a devout Jew. And his father was a Gentile. And here the question is, what causes this devout Jew like Timothy to become a strong believer? Okay, now over to the uh, third chapter. Uh, <clears throat> Melinda, Joe, Brian, and Mark, you all want to kind of split that up and read through the third chapter? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. That's not the same dog. 
Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are we are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, through I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, and I consider loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their God is, their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power, power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, notice uh, some attitudes there. First of all, look at the sacrifice that Paul is giving up. When you read there in uh, verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, for people who walk around like they're very proud because they have so many things going for them, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, what he's saying there is my parents were devout Jews and everything was carried out according to the law. Of the people of Israel, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and for zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, to really appreciate what Paul's saying, remember, this doesn't sound good to anybody except a Jew. But in Israel, to have all of this going for you would put you way up there. You, you knew your family lineage. You, your parents were devout Jews. You were a member of the most conservative. It, it would be like being an Iraq and, and a member of the Shiite Muslims. Uh, the Shiite Muslims are not the number one Muslim group in Iraq. And so you'd stand up and say, my parents were Shiite Muslims, and I'm a servant of, I'm the right-hand man of Saddam Hussein. Well, you'd be pretty hard to match from a, from a prestige standpoint in Iraq if you were the right-hand man of Saddam Hussein, and your parents were devout Muslims, and you were reared, and you were a Shiite Muslim. Well, that's what Paul's saying there. 
But notice what happened now. Can you imagine, let's go back to our Muslim situation, what it would take to get a devout Muslim who is the right-hand man of Saddam Hussein to renounce that and become a Christian. All right, this is what well, Paul Saddam's did. Saddam's right-hand man said he was a Christian. Aziz told Ted Koppel that he was a Christian. I couldn't believe he was saying that, but he said that. I don't, I don't know, but unless he has a misunderstanding, I think because um, they, uh, the, I don't talking about the uh, uh, <coughs> ambassador, uh, the ambassador to the U.S. was it or the? Uh, it was Aziz. Aziz is he the? I don't know. He was, uh, well, he yeah, was a spokesman he for Saddam. Because it's against the law to propagate Christianity in Iraq. He said he was a Christian. Yeah, I don't know I in what sense he it. made it, because it's against the law, and everything they're doing is in keeping with the. Um, the most, I mean, the whole war thing and the whole bit. I don't I know, know how he was just like I don't understand why he said that. I don't know. I don't know what he meant unless that he meant it from the standpoint that Christians believe in a certain way of life and he believes that too or something. I don't know. But I know that uh, even in uh, Saudi Arabia, it's uh, against the law to propagate it. Even Saudi Arabia. All right. But suffice it to say, that if you were the right-hand man in Saudi Arabia uh, and in that position, that would be a lot to renounce and turn away from. And so I'm saying that what Paul is saying here, that as a Jew, he, had, he was as high as he could be, and he had all that prestige. But then look at verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And so the question becomes, what caused Paul to give up all that prestige because of this belief in Christ. I mean, obviously, we are confronting a belief that is, it would be hard to imagine it being any stronger. And, it, and it's teaching things that are contrary to the nature of man himself. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, whose, whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so Paul says, everything I've lost. I'm in jail now. They're going to take my life. I've lost prestige. I've lost power. I've lost wealth. Everything I had, I've lost it, and I consider it but rubbish. And so again, dealing with a very intelligent, a very well-educated man, and that's his feelings about what he's left in order to become a Christian. All right, and then be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is the faith in Christ. Well, to appreciate this statement, remember he's already identified himself as a Pharisee. The very heart of the Pharisee's teaching was that your righteousness came from your law-keeping. And so here is a man that has took pride in the fact that he's a great law-keeper, and he believes he's right before God based on his keeping the law. A good example is the prayer given in the parable by Jesus where the Pharisee went up and the publican went up to pray and the Pharisee, remember, boasted about to God about what a great person he was. They actually took pride in being religious. So here's Paul, a person who, who all his Pharisee life has taken pride in his righteousness and he believes that righteousness is based on law-keeping and now he makes a 180 degree about face, and now he's, he's t actually teaching that nobody is good enough of their own merit and righteousness is imparted to them based on their faith in Christ. 
And so in verse 9, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, another question on that. All of us are the product of the thinking we've been brought up with, right or wrong. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. But whatever we think is influenced by the books that we read, the people we've met, and everything as, as we come up in life. The question becomes, where did Paul get this concept? I mean, look at that again in verse 9. Be found in him having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having that now, but one which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on a basis of faith. Where in all of the religion of the Jews, where in any of their teaching, was there any concept that it's possible for a man to be righteous because of his trust in another? And that he, his righteousness would not depend on his own merit, but would depend on somebody else. <clears throat> it's, uh, where is it in any other religion? It's not there. Uh, every single solitary religion, whatever righteousness it has, has a righteousness that's based on your own merit. And every religious group of Jesus' day, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians, uh, the scribes, the Levites, they all taught a righteousness based on merit. And the concept of a righteousness that you did not earn, that's given to you, and your recognition that you don't deserve it, was absolutely unique to Christianity. The question becomes, where did he get that concept? And then when we deal with that, we have to also deal with the fact that all the other apostles were teaching the same concept, and they come from the same background that the Apostle Paul did. Okay, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Verse 9. All right, verse 10. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. In other words, that he, that he was looking forward to it himself, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer. I want to live like he lived. I want, I'm willing to suffer. I want to, when I die, I want to die with the same kind of attitude that he did. And then I'm looking forward to the same kind of resurrection that he experienced. And again, remember that, that we have to deal with evidence from a cause and effect standpoint. What is it that caused Paul to believe this strongly and to be willing to not have fear of death and to be willing to have this kind of attitude towards life and death. Okay, now, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. Notice in verse uh, 19 and 20, or verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, the teaching of Christianity was that it didn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, Greek or Roman or Chinese or India or American or what, that our citizenship was first and foremost in heaven or with our relationship with God. And on this earth, we just happened to live in a specific place. Okay, now come on down to chapter 4 and look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything but prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Okay, and verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think on such things. 
All right, and the question, and again, as you read that, who is writing it? A man that's in jail for something he didn't do. And, and a man that should be full of bitterness because he's been persecuted, he's been beaten, he's in jail, he should be bitter, but he's not. And the question is, where do we duplicate that? Where in all of history do we have this guy that's in jail for something he didn't do and is being persecuted and he's hated and despised by others and he's writing to people and telling them to rejoice and to feel good. He tells them not to worry. And then he says to think on things that are, and he names all the various things there, all those positive qualities to think on. Paul is doing something that is psychologically impossible unless he's convinced beyond any doubt in his mind of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Okay. He's got a perfect understanding of what really is going on now. Okay, he's got a, his understanding, right, is based on a belief that's founded on evidence. All right, but notice it was his desire that they would have that same kind of belief. And I'm, I'm saying that what you see there is what God would have all of us be. That, uh, that same attitude and you can have it by examining the same type the same type of evidence and I'm saying that everything he's asking of himself and others is contrary to human nature unless there's some higher source that he's looking to okay anybody with any uh, comments or uh, questions about whatever we've covered in that letter Anything at all? Okay. Let's pause there for tonight.